This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. It's pretty easy to make a case for saving charismatic mammals, like pandas and elephants and whales. Now, even then, we're not very good at it, but we are trying. Ecologists have long lamented that we don't offer the same efforts on behalf of other life forms, like birds and reptiles and fish and trees and other plants. These things just don't get the same sort of attention. But an international group of scientists has sounded the alarm about a group of life forms that gets almost no love whatsoever from the conservation movement. And in a recent paper in the journal Biological Conservation, they've called for an ambitious conservation plan for parasites. Yeah, parasites. The authors of the paper say that a lot of parasites are in trouble, and that means we're in trouble too, because parasites play a hugely important ecological role. Among the authors of that paper is Skylar Hopkins, an assistant professor of ecology at North Carolina State University, who has helped build a plan intended to advance parasite biodiversity conservation. Skylar Hopkins, welcome. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I think we need to set all this up by pointing out that parasites aren't exactly the most loved organisms in the world. They do a lot of just sort of like gross and scary things, right? Yeah, I think a lot of people think about parasites as being gross. And that's okay, right? Some animals are kind of gross. And, you know, kids love gross stuff. We should all love those gross roles that parasites play in ecosystems. Tell me about the gross thing that parasites do that you love, because you kind of have a kid-like relationship with these things. Yeah, so I think if I had to pick my favorite thing that parasites do, it would be manipulating host behavior. So you might have heard of the cordyceps fungi, which are parasites that manipulate insects' behavior so they can, you know, control ants and make ants crawl up on a piece of vegetation and bite onto it. And then this fungus like erupts from their head and rain spores down on their whole colony, infecting everyone. So that's something that is kind of gross, right? But it really has captivated the imaginations of lots of people. We even have video games about cordyceps fungi now. This is like the closest thing to real zombies that we have in our natural world, right? Uh, Yeah, they're even called zombie parasites. So at the same time, these organisms play some really critical ecological roles also. They're not just gross. They're also, well, maybe they're gross, but they're also just super important. Tell me about something that they do that's super important ecologically speaking. Yeah, definitely. So um, parasites are parts of food webs in ecosystems, just like predators are parts of food webs. And so they are connecting species within food webs and playing important roles in moving energy and biomass through these food webs. And so I can give you one example of that. There's this parasite called an emetomorph, which is sometimes called a horsehair worm or a Gordian knot worm. And these are these really long worms that are crammed inside the tiny body of a cricket. And they manipulate the cricket's behavior, causing it to jump into bodies of water, which is not something a cricket would normally do. And once they get in that water, the adult parasite worm emerges and it goes off and seeks a mate in the water body, while that cricket often ends up being eaten by fish. And so in Japan, there's this endangered trout And a big proportion of its diet actually comes from these crickets that have jumped in the water because parasites made them do it. Um, And because these 
fish are eating these crickets, they're not eating other invertebrates which are in these streams, and so those invertebrates are more abundant and it changes the whole nutrient cycling within a stream. And so that's an example of just one parasite having this cascading effect on a whole ecosystem. It's got to be hard to find these connections sometimes, though, just because parasites don't get a whole lot of love from the scientific community. I know a lot of people build their research on, you know, what is primary research, research done by other people, but you've kind of got to do it all, right? Yeah, definitely. So um, one complication with studying parasites is that most parasite species have not been described by science, right? They don't even have a name yet. Um, And even the ones that we have named, we know almost nothing about their ecology. That's kind of exciting for scientists too, right? I mean, like, you get to find and discover and name and describe things for the first time. And that's something that, you know, like people who study large mammals don't get to do. Yeah, definitely. So my colleague and co-author on this paper, Colin Carlson, he says that parasites are like one of the last frontiers. So there's the deep space, there's the deep ocean. And then there's the life that lives inside every host species on the planet. So like every other organism on our planet, though, pretty much, parasites are vulnerable to climate change, but they're vulnerable in multiple ways. Can you talk about that? Yeah, so parasites are facing um, what's kind of this double-edged sword. So like every other species that you can think about, they could be threatened by what we call primary drivers of extinction. So if climate change or habitat degradation or some other um, change that's caused by humans affects their ability to survive or reproduce, then they could go extinct. But they also face secondary extinction risks, um, which you also call co-extinction sometimes. And That happens when the host that the parasite relies on declines or goes extinct. So you can imagine that every endangered species that we have listed on the planet has parasite species, right? And so if those endangered species become too rare or they go extinct, then the parasites that are relying on them will also potentially go extinct. Okay, you're softening my heart now to parasites because now they, they just seem so vulnerable. So you guys have put together this report. You've come up with a lot of goals. One of the goals is describing half of parasite diversity on Earth. That's no small thing considering what you were talking about earlier, which is that we have maybe only identified maybe 10% of the species on the planet. Right, definitely. It is a huge goal. And it will require that we meet some of these other goals first. So, for instance, we really need to support taxonomists and train taxonomists who can describe these parasite species. That's a very specific skill that we need people to be able to do. But in the end, a lot of the other parts of the parasite conservation plan that we propose really require that we describe more parasite species because we know that no one is going to try to conserve a species that doesn't even have a name or that we don't even know about. You know, you talked about supporting the taxonomists. One of the big parts of that is, you know, conservation genomics. You've also noted in this report there's this woeful lack of genomics focused on parasites. And and that includes the organisms we've identified. We're in the dark about a lot of what their genomes say about them, which is which is sort of tragic because these things have discovered really interesting ways to survive. They've evolved into some really fascinating niches. And there's 
a lot we can learn from them. Yeah, definitely. And it, we really need some of this these genomic genetics research in order to be able to just see if any parasite species have gone extinct. So it's just one example. There are these giant flightless birds called a moa that went extinct, what is now New Zealand, when humans colonized that land just due to overhunting. And people have gone back and looked at fossilized feces from the moa to see what parasites they had and then to try to compare it to parasite species that exist today. And in order to be able to do that work, we need to be able to genetically identify parasite species from DNA preserved in the fossil record. And so people are working on those techniques and making huge advances, but we still don't have those DNA barcodes that we need for most species. So it's just going to take a huge effort to develop these libraries where we have those DNA barcodes for enough species to really understand what's happening on a broad scale. So if we develop a greater library of DNA of today's parasites, it'll allow us to know better what existed previously, which then helps us understand today better because we understand the consequence of a host animal going extinct on the parasitic life forms that live on it or within it. Yeah, exactly. And also, if we can establish what parasite species exist today, so we have a really good baseline for today, then as we continue to do work into the future, we can be comparing back to today's baseline to see, you know, are we losing species or, you know, are our conservation efforts working to conserve these species that we knew existed in 2020? Okay, so even though the research suggests that parasites are indeed quite threatened in multiple ways, as you've described, there aren't a lot of parasites on the International Union for the Conservation of Nature's Endangered Species Red List, which people usually just call the Endangered Species List. How do you go about trying to change that? Yeah, that's a great question. So actually, two of the papers that came out in this special issue that contained this parasite plan that we just published are about how we could go about evaluating whether parasite species are endangered or not. So parasites are a little bit different, right, than their free-living counterparts because they face this double threat, face those primary extinction risks and co-extinction. And so people have now proposed some criteria that we can use. So you know, for free-living species, you might say, if your habitat gets, you know, below a certain amount of area, then that species is probably endangered. For parasites, that might still apply, but we also need to take into consideration, for example, how many individuals of the host species still exist and other factors like that. And so, yeah, now we have protocols so that we can really evaluate, is this parasite at risk for extinction or not? Okay, so if we have, let's say, a whale, a type of whale, right? And we know that there is a parasite that lives within the whale, and we know that the whale is endangered, and we don't find that parasite anywhere else, it stands to reason that that parasite is also endangered, or or many parasites, because most species don't just have one. Right, exactly. Yep. And so these new proposed criteria basically say, you know, if you know that there's a parasite species and it only exists on this one endangered host species, it is endangered as well, just by definition. And are there a lot of examples of that where we know that there's a parasite that really only exists on one kind of organism, as far as we know? Yeah, so we call those um 
uh, specialist parasites, and so there is a gradient, naturally. So some parasite species are very specific, and as far as we know, they only infect the one host species, whereas other parasite species might be very generalistic and they can infect many host species. And so those might not be as at risk of extinction because if you know one host species goes extinct, they might be able to persist on the other ones, whereas specialists are yeah, much more vulnerable to co-extinction risks. Can you give me an example of a specialist that also exists on an animal that might be threatened? Yeah, so um, I can give you an example of one that went extinct because you think it was a specialist. So the California condor is this huge vulture that we are working on conserving in California and surrounding areas. And as part of that effort, there's been ongoing conservation efforts, including like captive breeding programs. And when the condor populations were getting really low, we brought them all into captivity to try to conserve them. And part of those conservation efforts included veterinary treatments like delousing the birds. So we got rid of all of their ectoparasitic lice. And we're pretty sure that in that process, we eradicated this specialist louse, the California condor louse, that only existed on California condors. The irony of this is... I mean, it's it's like overwhelming, right? Like we're trying to save one species and to do it, we inadvertently kill at least one other. Yeah, exactly. And so something that we're asking people to do is just to try to consider parasites more broadly while they're conserving species that are not parasitic. So we're not saying that you always have to conserve all of the parasite species that an insect a host species. So for instance, I work on white-nose syndrome, which is this fungal pathogen that is decimating bat populations in the United States. And I would never say that we should conserve that fungus, right? That's not what we're talking about. But there are other parasites that infect bats, right, which aren't really causing them much harm. And so maybe we could conserve those along with the bat species. And so just knowing what parasites exist on the host that you're trying to conserve and do you really need to get rid of them, say, if you bring them into captivity or do you really need to get rid of them if you're translocating individuals of this host species from one place to another? Just taking those things into consideration could go a long ways towards conserving parasite species. Now, you've sort of alluded to this. This is a big challenge that you and your group face is most of the parasites that humans tend to be familiar with, for instance, the parasite that causes malaria, which is carried by mosquitoes, are the ones that are really deadly, that we don't like, that they do bad things. So how big of a public relations fight is this in addition to being a huge scientific effort? Yeah, so it's certainly a conundrum, right? If the species that you know best are the ones that are not great and have, you know, these detrimental impacts on people and our domesticated species. And again, we are not arguing that we should conserve those parasites. We should certainly control parasites that are infecting people. But they are just this tiny drop in the bucket of total global parasite biodiversity. And so I think it is really important that we start educating people, there's a lot of ways to do that, about all this other parasite biodiversity and the important roles that these other species are playing in ecosystems. One of the goals of your group, the group that wrote this recent paper, is to train up another generation of parasitologists. How do you get people excited about this stuff? 
I think in some ways people are already excited, right? So you talked a little bit about, you know, parasites being in video games and there are Pokemon that are based on parasites, right? So it is entirely possible to get people interested in them. I think a big place to start with is just making sure that when we educate people, so, you know, in K-12 education and in college and even beyond, Parasites are getting the same amount of time and interest that predators get, right? They play similar roles in ecosystems, but we tend to think a lot about predators and very little about parasites. And so I think people just don't realize how many parasite species they are and what they're doing within ecosystems. There's some roadmaps for this with other predators. I mean, I think like of one of the predators that historically has just been despised, but has a new and appreciative reawakening to is the North American wolf, where these were hunted almost to extinction. They were pushed out of lots of regions of our country and people are starting to wake up and go like, oh, wait, we like wolves. We need wolves. They play an important ecological role. So are there things that you are learning from other ecologists who work with other species, other types of species that you think can be applied to this effort of trying to reorient people to what a parasite actually is? Yeah, definitely. So I think that we can learn a lot from predator conservation. So thinking about how have people dealt with these conflicts between wildlife and people in the past and what there, you know, applies to parasites. In a lot of cases, it's easier to think about parasite conservation because the species that we're talking about conserving, the vast majority of species, don't actually have negative impacts on people or, you know, aren't really causing wildlife population declines or anything like that. So an analogy might be, you know, there are some conflicts between people and wolves, which have hampered wolf conservation. But I think very few people would argue about conserving, say, bald eagles in the United States, right? So in this case, we're saying, yeah, there are some parasites which are not good for people, but, you know, look at these other ones which aren't doing anything to harm people and we could conserve them. Okay, so conservation has benefited for a very long time from poster animals. What's the poster parasite? What's the one that you want people thinking about when they think about parasite ecology and conservation? Because it's just so... It's just so cool. Ooh, so cool. Uh, I'll have to think about that. I will say that I once ran a little contest to see what the cutest parasite species was. So I asked people on Twitter to nominate the candidates for the cutest parasite species, and I got a bunch, and then people could vote on them. It was a little bit of a toss-up, but all the ones that were rated the cutest were the ones that had little eye spots, so they look like they have little faces. So a lot of parasites have these very rudimentary eyes that can detect sort of like light versus dark kinds of inputs. And so I think if they had to pick amongst those, my favorite would probably be the like temnocephalin worms, which are these little worms that have a sucker that they use to stick onto crayfish. So they're ectoparasitic on the outside of crayfish or sometimes inside of crayfish. And they have these little finger-like projections on their heads, which has caused some people to call them the hamburger helper worms because <laughs> that's what the little mascot for hamburger helper looks like and i think that they look super cute okay so give me the name again for this adorable parasite so they're called temnocephalids 
And I do not remember if they had a common name or not. I think most people just call them like crayfish worms. So we know like common names are another thing. I mean, we can't even get to a common name before we have a scientific name, really. But like that's another thing that's really beneficial to ecological efforts is, you know, like names people can actually say and describe. Does that need to be, you know, like a greater emphasis of the parasitology community as well? Yeah, definitely. So we don't talk about this in our recent conservation plan, but I would love to see a naming committee for a parasite species. So for instance, there's a naming committee in the United States for what should we name, what common names should we use for different birds, and how do we decide on those common names? And I think we need something similar for parasites so that we can start going through this process. So I studied this little worm that lives on snails for my whole dissertation work, and it does not have a common name. So it has a species name, it's called Ketogaster limnae, and I could never talk to the general public using a common name for this little worm that I studied, which is so, so sad <laughs> to me. So yeah, it would make it a lot easier to communicate about these parasites if they had names that we could use broadly. Okay, so you had this thing that you studied. There isn't a common name for it, but did you come up with something for it? So I usually refer to it just by its genus. So I call them like ketogasters. I thought a little bit about a common name. But I didn't come up with anything brilliant. Like, snail worms just doesn't really have the best ring to it. So if anyone wants to email me later and tell me a great common name for these little worms that live on snails, I'd love to hear it. Well, And you are, I mean, this is a good time to say, like, you are pretty active in social media spaces. You blog, you tweet. Where can people find you? Well, yeah, definitely. So on Twitter, I'm at Parasite Ecology. And then my blog, which has cartoons and horrible puns about parasites, is parasiteecology.wordpress.com. What drew you into the world of parasite ecology? How did you start geeking out about this stuff? I really wanted to be a marine biologist when I was an undergraduate student. And one summer, I applied to like every marine biology internship that I could find. And I applied to some other internships as well, just in case I didn't get a marine bio internship. And I didn't. I didn't get the the marine internship that I wanted, but I did get accepted for this one internship looking at pond parasites. And I can remember when I got the email, I was like so bummed out. I thought, oh gosh, I'm going to spend like my whole summer like looking in a microscope instead of snorkeling, it's going to be so boring. But then I went and did this internship and it was just amazing. Like all of the parasites that you can find in, you know, snails and frogs and the things that they're doing in these ecosystems was just something that I'd never thought about before. And I was hooked and I studied parasites ever since. This is an important lesson, right? And you've just moved to a new school, North Carolina State University. You've joined the faculty there. I imagine this is a story that you're going to pull out for your students when they hit roadblocks and stumbling blocks and they're bummed out about something and they feel like they've had a failure because these kinds of things can set us on really new and exciting roads. Oh, yeah, definitely. I think my whole career, like every career turn that I've taken has been entirely by chance. It is not what I plan to do, right? The things that are most important to me now are opportunities that just appeared and I either had to take them or I took a chance and did something that I really thought I wasn't going to like. And 
I think those are super important. So yeah, I would say you can't predict when you're an undergraduate student where you're going to end up. And that's all just part of the ride. And it's awesome. And what's your next project? What do you want to do? I mean, obviously, you're going to be continuing to be a part of this group that is working toward these goals toward parasite ecology. But do you have a specific question that you're trying to answer right now? Ooh, that's a great question. So I do work on parasite conservation. I'm thinking about future projects that are related to parasite conservation. So for instance, we don't have a very good idea of how parasite biodiversity has changed over you know, the past century or so, or even further. So parasites had these soft, squishy bodies, and so they don't fossilize very well. So Previously, I mentioned, you know, we might be able to get parasite DNA out of fossilized species, but that's not always a viable option. And so another way that we might be able to look at parasites from history is to go into museum collections where host species have been preserved, like preserved in ethanol, for instance, and to look inside those host species and see what kind of parasite species they had. And so one question that I'm really interested in is just how has parasite biodiversity changed over the past say, century within host species that have been preserved within museums? That sounds like just a ton of fun. Yeah, <laughs> I think it is. It's kind of like, it's like a mystery. Um, there's like every jar that you open is just like this opportunity to find something that no one knows anything about, right? And so I think... Yeah, it's really exciting overall to do that kind of work. That's Skylar Hopkins. Her team's recent report is about saving parasites before it's too late. Skylar Hopkins, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio, and if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us every Thursday morning at 1030 on UPR. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer is Naomi Ward. Our associate producer is Mia Dora. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.